Good afternoon, everyone. We are together again for our Friday afternoon Erev Shabbat class with Rabbi Akiva Zweig, Rosh Yeshiva at the Talmudic University of Florida and spiritual leader of the Hemisphere Torah Educational Program. Today, uh, the rabbi will be delivering his uh, weekly Parsha Shir, which is uh, kindly sponsored by the Henry and Lisa Manusheri family. And uh, he will be discussing Parsha's Tetzave. The topics will be Hashem on Demand, as well as Justice and Achieving Clarity. The month of Adar is sponsored by Alex and Danielle Galski and family in memory of beloved grandparents, Abraham, Bela, Guillermo, and Dora, and also in loving memory of Uncle Alberto Galski. Those of you who want to listen to this year again, to or, or want to share it with friends, a recording will be posted afterwards, and you can also find it on podcasts as well as the YouTube channel. Be sure to subscribe to it. The, the link was posted above. Uh, without any further ado, Rabbi Akiva Zweig on Parshas Tetzavah. Good afternoon, everyone. Good Arab Shabbos. Pleasure to be with you. As Aaron mentioned, we are discussing Parshas Tetzavah, and the titles are Hashem on Demand and Clarity, Justice, and these are very interesting and important topics in, in our lives. Nowadays, more than ever, we need clarity. And the Torah, as always, teaches us things in the most profound and interesting ways uh, if we just open up our eyes to look for it. So Parshas Tetzaveh largely discusses the clothing of the Kohanim, specifically in great detail, the clothing of the Kohen Gadol, which is literally fascinating. We have something called the Me'il, which is a robe that only the high priest wore, an apron, in Hebrew called the aphod. Also, the high priest wore that a special band on his forehead that said, Holy to Hashem, a golden band called the tzitz. And of course, the very famous choshen, which is the breastplate, which sounds like a metal utensil, but it really is cloth with a fold, a square. It's like a rectangle folded into a square. Inserted into that were the divine names of Hashem. And the names are referred to in the Torah as the Urim Vitumim, which means to light up and to make complete. Fascinatingly, there's an argument in the commentaries if the letters of the stones lit up or if they jutted out. They kind of, you know, moved outward to show the Kohen, the letters to which, you know, he needed to pay attention. We're going to talk more about this process and uh, as we go along. But the point that I want to make is that the Torah largely focuses on these garments and the exact purpose of the garments is not so clear from the text. Now, the Talmud tells us in a few places, uh, right now I'm referring to Tractate Arachin, page 16a, and it begins with a statement by one of the rabbis, Rabbi Anani Bar Sassam, that he says, why are the garments of the Kohen juxtaposed to the offerings 
that are mentioned also in our Parsha. In our Parsha, we talk about various offerings. Mostly we talk about the offerings that the Kohanim brought when they were inaugurated upon their installation into service. So this rabbi is asking, why does the Torah put the garments of the Kohanim and specifically the Kohen Gadol next to the offerings of our Parsha? And so he says an amazing thing. He says, because just like the offerings atone, bring forgiveness for various sins of the Jewish people, so too the garments that were worn, and now we're, again, we're talking about the high priest today mostly, so too the garments that were worn by the high priest, the Kohen Gadol, brought atonement. As, for example, and there are different opinions, I'm just giving you a couple of examples, because today we're going to focus mostly on the Choshen, on what I mentioned a moment ago, the breastplate. But an example that he gives is that the kisones, which was the tunic or the shirt of the Kohen, right, the outer upper garment of the Kohen Gadol, it atoned for murder. And the kind of correlation that the uh, Talmud says is also amazing. We know that when Joseph was taken and, you know, taken away by his brothers and that they pretended to murder him, and that's what I'm sorry, they pretended that he was dead, which was akin to murder. Um, so it says that they dipped his tunic, his kisones, same word, that's the Hebrew word ketonet, into blood. And so the ketonet of the Kohen atones for murder. Another example is the pants of the Kohanim, or of the Kohen Gadol again, at, at, would atone for illicit relationships. Okay, um, the headband of the Kohen would atone for arrogance, and the belt of the Kohen would atone for improper thoughts, and then the the fits the headband of the Kohen would atone for stubbornness, which is really interesting. We need an atonement for being stubborn and, uh, and uh, you know, you could say brazenness. So maybe it's more than just stubbornness. Like maybe we're, yeah. Yeah, you know, but but brazenness and stubbornness are, are definitely correlated, but it's like, you know, we need an atonement for that. Um, and then lastly, the Choshen, which is the breastplate, atoned for, improper judgments okay so for the improper judging of the jewish people was atoned for by this kosher that the kohen gadol would wear and somehow that would bring atonement for making mistakes in judgment or somehow doing improper justice not so clear you know what what mistakes uh, that we are referring you know to what type of mistakes but what i want to point out that i find rather interesting is that it doesn't say anything about murder by the shirt. It doesn't say anything about improper thoughts by the belt. It doesn't say anything about brazenness or stubbornness by the the, the, the gold band of the Kohen. But when it comes to the Choshen, the Torah does use the word Mishpat. Choshen Mishpat. That the Torah is very explicit on. And that's one of the reasons that I, I wanted to focus on that. Because at least over here, you know, we have a word in the literal text of the Torah that seems to be completely um, not belonging. We're talking about beautiful 
jewels that were on this breast breastplate that had on them carved into them the names of the Shivatim. What does that have to do with Mishpat? It's bizarre. It's absolutely bizarre. And that's one of the real indicators, I think, that the rabbis understood that all the garments have something more to it than meets the eye. Uh, we just don't see explicitly necessarily in the words, but by the construction of the various things, maybe we get more of an indication about the various things for which they atone. So I don't want to go into the other garments now, but the fact that it's calling the breastplate of judgment needs great explanation. So let's discuss a little bit more about the construction of this garment. And then we're going to explain what Rashi says about this concept of Mishpat. And that's going to be a heavy focus. So first of all, uh, today we're going to need some background because the Torah doesn't really give us this background. So like I mentioned, the rabbis say that the garments atone. We're going to be doing more background based on the Talmud and based on the Rambam. So this breastplate, as I mentioned, was a folded material with the divine names of Hashem put inside this fold. It had golden settings. And inside these settings were put these very precious stones. And on these stones were carved the names of the 12 tribes. Now, later on, the Torah does tell us that when it would come the time that a person would need to ask some question of Hashem, he could go ask his question of Hashem by going to the Kohen that wears these garments. And specifically, he would be asking the Mishpat Ha'urim in the, so to speak, judgment of this divine names and the stones that are part of this garment. Now, the Rambam that I'd like to read to you now, and this is in the end of the section in the Rambam that talks about the vessels of the Holy Temple. And in case you don't know it already, it's extremely important to understand. First of all, Rambam is Maimonides. He lived in about the 1100s. And he is the only Jew, and I'm being very, very uh, specific here, the Rambam, Rabbi Moshe, the son of Maimon, is the only Jew to codify, organize, practical law of the entire Torah. The only Jew to have ever done that. And therefore, especially when it comes to laws of the Holy Temple, of the future, that most commentaries <coughs> and deciders of halacha did not address, the Rambam is one of the only places to go, Maimonides, to have a great luminary telling us a decision of the practical law. So at the end of the Rambam's discussions to the laws of the temple utensils, he says like this, this is uh, chapter um, 10, uh, number 10. Okay, it's the, the last two numbers, 10, 11, 12, and 13. I'm just going to paraphrase a few. First of all, Maimonides, the Rambam points out that this garment, which was able to serve somehow as a spokes, you know, person, so to speak, of Hashem, those questions could not be asked in the second temple. Because in the second temple, they did not have the right kind of divine inspiration, and therefore these stones could not be asked these questions at the time of the second temple. And then the Rambam describes when they did ask the questions, how would they ask the questions? You got to picture this because it's such a beautiful um, explanation. 
says the person asking the question, well, we'll start with the Kohen. The Kohen, the high priest who wore this garment, he would stand facing the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, facing the Aram. And in the first temple, of course, we had the Ark. The person asking the question stood behind the back of the Kohen. Okay, so the one asking the question stood behind the back of the Kohen, the Kohen facing the Ark. And he would ask the question, and a, a classic example of a question that he would ask is, hey, should I go up and fight this war, or should I not go up and fight this war? That's a, an example of a question. Should we go into Lebanon, and you know, should we not go into Lebanon, right? And says the Rambam that the one asking the question should not do it in a loud voice, but he also shouldn't just think about it in his heart. Rather, he should do it in a soft voice, like a person typically praise between himself and Hashem, you know, between the way a person talks, so to speak, to himself when he's standing and praying. Immediately, a divine inspiration would cloak the Kohen. The Kohen would then look at this breastplate with these stones, and he would see in a prophetic vision an answer that would either say, go up, or it would say, don't go up with letters that would protrude, they would jut outward from the breastplate towards like where the, how the Kohen was looking. And then the Kohen would answer, go up or don't go up, depending on what his prophetic vision taught him. Now, there are commentaries that discuss did the letters light up or was it more like a protrusion? Did each one of those things happen or was the whole thing just a prophetic experience, but nothing, uh, pardon the pun, materially changed in the, in the stones or the Hoshin. And then a few other rules that the Kohen talks about is that uh, you couldn't ask two questions at once. And uh, if, if, if he did ask two questions, only the first one was answered. And more importantly, even the, the Raman points out that the only person that could ask is a king, the Beistin, which probably in this case means the Supreme Court, the, the court of 71, or anybody that the Tzibor needs him to ask. And he proves it from the sentences. And so basically what Maimonides is telling us here is that this Choshen was utilized by the community or a representative of the community, whether it's a Kohen, the Beistin, or anybody who the community needed for his question to be asked. And he would ask his question of the Choshen. The Kohen would have a prophetic vision while he was facing the Ark, but looking at the Choshen to answer his question. And then the Kohen would tell him the answer that he saw prophetically. And this did not happen in the second temple. It happened in the first temple. Okay, now that's awesome, right? That's just great. And the truth is, we only have two examples in the entire history of the Jewish people of someone who could go demand a prophetic response from Hashem. Moshe, whenever Moshe would ask Hashem a question, Hashem had to respond. And here we have a representative of the Jewish people, king, court, or someone that was community appointed and the community needed his answer, could literally demand an answer from Hashem. And that's what we meant in our title, Hashem on Demand. It's an incredible thing, 
right? To, to be given that kind of a, a mechanism that we could elicit a response like that from Hashem literally whenever we want it. Now that's great. What does it have to do with mishpat? Mishpat, as we mentioned, atones for improper judgments. What does this whole prophetic experience, Hashem being on demand, have anything to do with mishpat? Why is this related to justice? Why is it called the choshen ha-mishpat? Why does this atone for the miscarriages of justice of the courts? So now I want to share with you that Rashi tells us four ways that the word mishpat is used. Three of them relate directly to judgment, but the way that it seems that our sentence is using it is a fourth way. And it's funny because Rashi really only says that there are three ways, but then he proceeds to say four ways. So number one is the concept of litigants arguing their case. So in the Torah, the word mishpat could be used to describe the claims, the ta'anot, the claims of the litigants could be referred to as mishpat because basically it's a court case. It's a judgment case. That The word mishpat could be used to describe the claims of the litigants. That's way number one. Number two is the decision of the court. So when a judge pronounces a decision, that pronouncement is also called mishpat, right? When he says obligated, that's called a mishpat. He's, he's pronouncing a judgment. And a third is implementing the judgment, whether it be money, lashes, execution. That would be the sentence, right? The, the carrying out the decree is also mishpat. So we have the claims of the litigants, that's mishpat. We have the, the decision of the court, that's mishpat. We have the implementation of the justice that's also called mishpat. And then Rashi says, when it comes to choshen mishpat, in our sentence, you know what it means? It means clarifying the word and the promise of Hashem. It seems to be a completely different connotation. Rashi doesn't even say that it's a fourth thing. Again, Rashi says mishpat is used in three different ways. And this one says Rashi, is clarifying the words of Hashem and his promise of truth. I'll just tell you the beginning. It clarifies the word of Hashem and Hashem's truthful promise. So I'd like to, you know, now that we have this, this whole background, I'd like to suggest the following about the concept of justice, and hopefully it will help us to clarify what the Hoshen is clarifying and why all of these things are connected. But let me first just kind of list off all the things that we need to explain. First of all, why is it called the Hoshen HaMishpat? We seem, to, we seem to be talking about prophecy, not justice, right? This is not something that the judge would use. This is something that Hashem uh, would, would be, so to speak, called upon to give us some form of prophecy. Number two, we have the ideas of the, the, the stones of the Choshen, right? Which these precious stones have the names of the Shvatim on them. That also seems to be irrelevant. You know, everybody knows um, that, that the names of the Shvatim uh, had most of the letters of the alphabet and a few other names were added to the Choshen called Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, Shivtei Ka, the tribes of 
of, of Hashem. And altogether, this, you know, fully composed all the possible letters in the alphabet. Okay, you could just simply have, you know, the alphabet. You don't need to have the names of the Shvatim, right? And the stones representing the different tribes. So that also is part of this incredible, you know, collab co collaboration of ingredients to make up this Hoshan. We have the Kohen wearing it. We have the divine names that are inserted behind it. And this idea of Mishpat that needs a lot of explanation. So that's what we're trying to understand. So I'd like to suggest that the concept of Mishpat really, meaning when we talk about justice, when we talk about implementing the laws of Hashem, Parshas Mishpatim, which came right after Mount Sinai, uh, after the Mount Sinai event, what we're really talking about is bringing the world into accordance with the truths of Hashem in the most practical manners possible. That means that carrying out justice, meaning Hashem's justice, the Torah's system of justice, is not only about you know, doing what's right and doing what's wrong, you know, avoiding what's wrong, but it's actually the way that the truths of Hashem become part and parcel of this world to the fullest, most important extent that could be imagined. Because when we live and implement the rules of Hashem, that means we're living Hashem's truths. So as opposed to, you know, many religions, which I don't ever like to refer to Judaism as a religion, so I don't even like that connotation. But as opposed to religions, um, which the idea of the philosophy of a god is very often extremely the theoretical and is not able to be translated into the extremely practical, the concept of mishpat is that we have an incredible system of truths and laws and words that were taught to us at Mount Sinai and later that explain to us how to deal with everything that occurs in human interaction with one another, how to know the correct way to act about everything. And that means that we have the ability to apply, literally apply what Hashem's truths are to our lives as if Hashem was standing on our shoulders and telling us exactly what to do every step of the way, which would be awesome, right? So we don't have Hashem, so to speak, on our shoulder, telling us every single thing that we should do whenever we have a question. But what we do have is a system of mishpat that conveys to us exactly the truths of Hashem, which means that ultimately the most clarifying and illuminating system possible exists, and that system is called Mishpat, knowing the truths of Hashem and putting them into practice, right? That's that's always the hardest thing. Even when you get advice someone from someone and they're, they're giving you ideas about anything, psychology or philosophy, and you're saying, okay, okay, so practically speaking, what does that mean? How do I implement that advice into my situation? That's what Mishpat is meant to do. And so therefore, what the Torah is really telling us is that if you want to find the truth of Hashem in this world and you want to know what is a way of living that represents exactly what Hashem conveys to us as true, that's called mishpat or halacha, which is why the Talmud says that Hashem's only domain in this world 
meaning Hashem's only resting place in this world, once there is no holy temple, those are the four cubits of halacha. Because that's the only place to find truth. You're not going to find truth in the Ivy League colleges. You will not find Hashem's clarified messaging in other quote-unquote educations, uh, institutions of higher education and learning because they are not built on pristine truth. The only system that is built on pristine truth that you can say with confidence, this is what Hashem is telling us to do. This is what is true now, is mishpat, the four cubits of halacha. And it's specifically only able to exist because there is a Jewish nation that is dedicated to continuing to study the Torah with that intention and to apply it to their lives. And that is the 12 tribes of the Jewish people built on three forefathers that birthed them. So the Choshen, which is the place that conveys to us the messaging from Hashem in prophecy, should I go to war? Should I not go to war? There is a mechanism that we can demand from Hashem an answer when we stand behind the Kohen, when we're asking as a community, as a Jewish people, what is it that we collectively should do? And Hashem has to answer because Hashem has promised to us to live with us and to be involved with us. And since the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, the only place where that can really be found is in the legal application of the rules of the Torah. And that's part of Hashem's commitment to us. It's unbelievable that even though he doesn't have a resting place here, he still has a way to do it, and that's called Mishpat. My father taught, and, and, and many times I, I heard him say that there's a very fascinating law in the Torah of false witnesses, where the law is that if, if we have witnesses that claim that Reuven killed Shimon, and we find out later that those witnesses were not on location, they were somewhere else, when they claimed to have seen Reuven kill Shimon, those two witnesses get killed because they tried to kill Reuven. And an incredible Talmudic law is that if we only find out that information after Reuven was executed in court, right? So if you imagine on January 1st, the two witnesses came and said Reuven killed Shimon in Miami. And then it happens that the Basin decides, hey, Reuven is liable to be killed. So they killed Reuven a few days later. And then we find out a few weeks later that those two witnesses were false. They were somewhere else at the time. They weren't in Miami. They were in L.A. We don't do anything to those witnesses, even though you would think that we should for sure kill them, because if they had not killed, if Basin had not executed Reuven, so we would kill those witnesses for trying to kill Reuven. Now that they actually kill Reuven, we don't do anything. It's an incredible Talmudic law. So Nachmanides explains, Ramban explains, that the reason is because we assume that any law that is carried out by court is done so with the acquiescence of God. And since it was carried out and God stands where the judges sit, that means that God is in agreement. And even though the legal system didn't work well, so to speak, in the sense 
that it seems like we killed Reuven because of false witnesses, we acknowledge that if it actually happened, that means that God was okay with that, so to speak. And so therefore, we don't do anything to these witnesses. Obviously, they have other repercussions for testifying falsely, but we don't murder, we don't, we don't execute the witnesses for having falsely been the ones to accuse Reuven and for the court to carry out a false judgment, so to speak, against Reuven. We could wear the Choshen to get atonement for the mistake uh, that we, you know, kind of carried out a justice that looks like it was based on faulty information, but in fact, we don't kill the witnesses. So the point is that the collection of the various parts of the Choshen are specifically ideas that convey to us that Hashem's truth is alive and well in our world. That's the bottom line. Hashem's truth is alive and well in our world if we implement justice the way that Hashem says. Now, it's also true that unfortunately, like Maimonides says, that since the time of the Second Temple, we don't have this on-demand prophecy experience from Hashem. And so therefore, we don't have this kind of clarification of the word of Hashem and his promise based on current questions that we ask from the the Choshen, from this breastplate. But, you know, I'm going to get a little controversial here just for a moment. I think it's absolutely impossible for me to understand how any Jew could not advocate for exactly what this the army of Israel has chosen to do in going to seek out its own safety by killing as many of the opposition that it can, pardon me, eliminating as many of the opposition as it can nowadays. Whether or not a person would like to argue that the state of Israel shouldn't have been established, which you know is an argument that Jews have made, respectable Jews have made, but the situation in which we live currently, it's nigh impossible for me to imagine that this is not in consonance with the mishpat of Hashem. Everything from the very simple law that somebody who comes to murder you, you're obligated to get up earlier to kill him in advance of his murdering you. And for the simple fact that Jews all over the world are much weaker if Jews don't have a place and a way to respond to aggression against them. And so therefore, if we want to know how do we implement the word of Hashem today and Hashem's promise today, yes, it's a shame we cannot ask the Choshen. Should we destroy the nuclear power plants in Iran or not? Yeah, okay, that, that would be a great one to ask. But everything short of that, that we know we are actually doing in consonance with protecting the Jewish nation, which is a collective need of the Jewish people, seems to me to be very clear part of the truth of Hashem that we need to implement. And so therefore, the Torah goes out of its way to tell us that this Hoshen is a Hoshen Mishpat, because what we need to do as a people is make sure that we are bringing out the very clear truths of Hashem. It's in the halacha of how we rule on every subject under the sun, and it's in even these political questions and the way that we deal with uh, all the things that we wish we could ask the Choshen nowadays, but we cannot ask. And 
I, I think that the reason that the Kohen looks to the Ark is because the Ark, we know, is the place of the Merkava. That's the way, Kabbalistically, it's the chariot of Hashem on in this world. But the place where the Mishpat of the king that's on the chariot, that's on the throne, it's also called the throne of Hashem, the place where we see the words of Hashem being implemented in this world is through his Shivatin. That's where it's through. So therefore the, the Kohen stands and he looks at the ark and he looks to the names of the Jewish people because the collective Jewish people and the way that we behave more than anything is the one place that we have to look for truth of Hashem in this world and the way that it's carried out. So, of course, it would be great to have the divine inspiration. We don't have it, but I'll just conclude with one thought and then take any, any questions or comments. We have a very interesting Jewish law about custom. Right? It sounds like an oxymoron, but it's a Jewish law about custom. And the Jewish law about custom is that if you have a custom that all the Jewish people have undertaken, that becomes law. I'm sorry? Minik Shover did. Minik Shover did. Yeah, you mean even breaks law. Yeah, Vichil is pointing out it even, it even could uh, somehow supersede the din. Because there's a collective, this is the way Rabbi Kaplan uh, in the Handbook of Jewish Thoughts explains it, that the collective Jewish people have a divine inspiration quality. Right? What we do collectively as a nation is as though we are being guided by the divine presence of Hashem. And to me, that's really what the Choshen represents. The collective Jewish people combined with the Kohen, Hashem is bonded with us in the time of the Mishkan, in the time of the space of Mikdash, we could demand clear communication. Nowadays, we only have as a kind of a metaphysical concept that what the Jewish people decide to do as a nation, that is exactly what Hashem wants us to be doing. Questions or comments? What's that? I have to wait for comments. Okay. <laughs> I don't know why. I, I have a quick question. Uh, yes. Uh, we don't have all the tribes today. I mean, we don't know. We're not organized in that manner. We we don't have a coin gadol as you said, or the the same kind of level of inspiration. So, you you mentioned th that somehow the entire Jewish nation in the aggregate somehow uh, duplicates that sort of a thing. But because there's so much division and difference of opinion, how how is how how are all these divided opinions and views? How can they be viewed as a as 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 some kind of a, a substitute or replacement for what such a such a such a complete system with the shavatim in the in place and the coin gadol and the and the garments and so on? Yeah, that's a great question, and and I, I know I'm talking directly to our friend Rebutal over here. So I want to say I want to say the following. Let's say, for example, the question of let's take down the mosque, right? Let's take down the mosque on the Temple Mount. The collective Jewish people with all of its different factions have pretty much let go of that issue. Right? That doesn't mean to say that there aren't Jews who disagree. But at the end of the day, 
if functionally we don't take down the mask, mosque, uh, I would say that that's the collective decision of the Jewish people, despite the fact that we may have many differences. Or the entire question of establishing the state of Israel. For the last, uh, you know, 80 years, uh, we've gone along with the idea that there is a state of Israel. That's been the collective Jewish decision. But that doesn't mean that people don't have a right uh, to think that we should have done otherwise. I'm not, I'm not arguing that. What I'm saying is that at the end of the day, that is what we have. It has not been undone by the collective Jewish nation. And I, th I do think it's fair to say that that is the collective Jewish decision, even if it should not have been done, which I'm not, I'm not coming down on that issue one way or another. But at the end of the day, it was done. That, and, and we are living with that reality. And so there are definitely people that argue on that. And uh, that's that's how we're living as a collective Jewish nation. And, you know, one of the things that I think people lose sight of the fact is the way that we are also integrated with one another. We think that, you know, just because we have different opinions, you know, it's like two different camps. But the real truth is we're extremely integrated and we don't even realize that. I'll just give you one small example. This past Shabbos, I was in Columbus to do a scholar in residence, which came as a last minute surprise because their speaker couldn't make it. Their speaker is Rav Gav. That's, that's who was supposed to be there this past Shabbos. Two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago at this point, I get a call from my daughter that the daughter of Rav Gav is getting engaged to the son of our very good friends who my father and our family really brought to the yeshiva and brought to learn. So that means the grandson of this very good friend of mine is marrying Rav Gav's daughter. This is three weeks ago. I had no idea he was scheduled to speak in Columbus. Turns out he's scheduled to speak in Columbus. Fine. I go to speak in Columbus and I mentioned this story, you know, that we have this like shared, you know, history. And by the way, the shul that Rav Gav normally davens at, my daughter told me, is a shul that my son-in-law, his brother started it. Well, sitting in the audience, is the person where that shul actually started in Israel in their neighborhood, sitting in the audience in Columbus, right? So like we have no idea of the interconnections. And so what I'm talking about, the collective decision of the Jewish people, I promise you, everybody I mentioned in the story probably has different views on a lot of things. But at the end of the day, I ended up speaking for him because he couldn't make it. His daughter is marrying, you know, the, the grandson of my very good friend. Right. And my daughter somehow is connected and the shul is connected and the person in the audience is connected, even though, again, I'm sure he disagrees in many things with, you know, several other people in this story. We don't understand when we talk about the collective Jewish people, how integrated we are. We do make a decision collectively. Just because we do live with it and don't get it changed, you know, otherwise. Any other questions? If there's nobody else, I, I, I yeah, have a second please. question. I don't want to monopolize the conversation, but, but I have questions. Uh, on the question of the garments of the Kohen Gadol, usually there's some kind of a, sometimes a practical lesson or some kind of an action or something that we can take away as ordinary people on on from the Torah. And sometimes it's like it's like cooking. They're just rules, and you just trust it, and it 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 it, it affects and helps us in other ways. People usually think of outer garments and appearances and things like that as being very superficial, and uh, and 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 
and yet here we have the a manifestation of very deeply spiritual things through these physical things, but they're not just reminders. I don't think they're just a call to action. They actually seem to have some kind of intrinsic power of their own. How can we take, what can, can we take away from this in, in terms of how we view the world and, and what we should do? Because at that first glance, it's like, oh, it's these are clothes that have powers, you know? Yeah, yeah. Can I, yes, can yes, I, yes Rabbi, please. Uh, Rabbi Nakim is elaborating. No, I just want um, to say this: you, you need to integrate that with what the Torah itself says. How does that integrate with what Aaron saying, what you're saying? How do we integrate the ideas so, of the says with the Mishpat and with his idea of the clothes having that power, etc. That's okay. Okay. Um, so. One of the things that uh, Rambam writes that I didn't mention, but the same chapter in the Rambam just at the end, is that in the times of the Nevi'im, uh, there would be people that would not be Kohanim that would wear a similar garment called an ephod. They would wear they would wear an ephod. So, so in Maimonides, the Rambam says, it's not that they would wear it because they were Kohanim, but it, they would wear it to show that they too merited a divine inspiration like the Kohen who was wearing these garments. So like you're pointing out, it, it's not necessarily the magic of the article. That's a, truthfully a very secular and I would even say a very Tame way to look at you know, um, the, the artifacts, right? You mentioned the artifices, right? It's not that the power comes from the thing, it's really about the achievement of the people and the clothing becomes a, a way that what the person is gets reflected. As Rabbi Chiyo is saying, the glory and the tiferes of the person, right? It's, it's really who the person is and his connection to Hashem. So, but really even better and much more directly to your question, Aaron Yehud, and what to do, which way do we face when we dive in Shona Esrei nowadays? To where the Holy Temple, to where the Ark is. Where is the Kohen facing that allows him to, so to speak, receive this divine inspiration to where the ark is, right? If we see ourselves as standing in front of Hashem, ready to serve what the community needs, whether we're wearing the ephod or not, when we're asking our questions to Hashem, the likelihood is that we're going to be given some sort of communication back that will help the community. Right. We have to have that mindset. It's literally the way just listen how beautiful it is the way the Brahman says it's as though the person is davening. The person who's asking the question, it's as though that he's davening. That's the way he's supposed to speak, not loud, not in his heart, but literally like he's praying behind the Kohen who's looking at the ark that then looks at the Hoshan, which is as we're explaining really all about the whole Jewish people and the fact that we have to be seeking to implement Hashem's truth in the world. The likelihood is that we're going to get an answer. I very strongly believe that. And in fact, that's what I spoke about this past Shabbos, that you know, we have to go to shul because it's a way that we don't only talk to Hashem, it's also the way Hashem talks to us. And we also face the Aron in shul. Right? It's Hashem, we're, we're supposed to be asking, but what's very, very important is that we have to really be thinking about what's good for the collective Jewish people and being ready to serve. What's interesting is... Yes, you know. What's interesting is if when the Kohen went into Kachikudashim on Yom Kippur, he took mm -hmm. off, he wore his wh white garment. One of the things he said that you should not listen to the people that are going in the way 
because of rain, because they were not going to ask for rain. So they, that's where it showed the power of this person that's really in the middle of the way. And all of a sudden, he's saying it's filler, and he's not wearing the garment. He's wearing only the four white garments. And this is what he's telling that the, the, the prayer of the over the Rachim, we don't listen. Yeah. Yeah. So you see the power of the tefillah it's somehow higher than even not wearing the garment. Yeah, on Yom Kippur, uh, I, on Yom Kippur, you're right, he couldn't wear the garment, but, but seemingly the reason is Yom Kippur because of the ego. But yeah, yeah no, it's no, something I know that, but I'm saying that yeah. he's saying that he should not listen to the people that are going in the way that it shouldn't rain. That's yeah. the power of the prayer of the guy in the middle of the way. Without wearing are no you garment. comparing praying for the rain like the establishment or not praying for like the establishment in the state of Israel or something else? Am I missing the no. parallel? No, 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 don't, don't get me. <laughs> okay, no, you started. I'm trying to say how, what the, the tefillah means. Don't touch it. That's the main thing. Is and the second thing he's praying that it shouldn't end. The kingdom shouldn't end. If you realize, yeah. So he's praying without. He's praying this without the garment, only the white garments. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. Yeah, but I do also just want to point out that the place where we know that people would ask is from Apostle Kintashas Pinchas that's really talking about how Yeshua is going to lead the people and he's going to have the glory, Yeshua is going to have the glory of Moshe, he's going to stand in front of Elazar and he's going to ask these types of questions. So Yeshua being like the first uh, Melech after Moshe that would utilize this uh, this this mechanism. All right, um, we good for today? Um, Rabbi, well, I have... like... yeah, 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 go ahead. Yes. <clears throat> Yes, Dr. No, Finkelstein, and then Alan. Yeah. Oh, well, I was just thinking that it, the, the interesting thing about about the little bushim is that, like, the clothing is that, you know, when, when, when you dress a certain way, it allows you to kind of, not, not mindlessly, it allows you to, to really make contact with a specific role. And it's brought down in the facetis that it's like, you know, what's the difference between hugging the king versus hugging the clothes that the king is, you know, but well, you know, the, the king is wearing clothes. You're still hugging the king, right? It puts you kind of in direct contact. That's like at the very material root of, of, of like a point of contact where you could, you go from, you know, and, and uh, something abstract to something you're really making contact with, you know, yeah. in, in the same way, it's like the, the um, like in the same way, when you think about what, what, what the breastplate represents there's this kind of like sequential building of of a lineage of people that are in that breastplate right there's a kind of like you know it's a kind of stack of people who are in the breastplate from the the avos that are, are kind of in the breastplate that are mentioned and then their their names are there and then on then the shvat team are there right and um and then that's all like worn by by the high priest so the interesting thing is that the abstract representation of that the, the abstract conceptualization of law is represented by Moshe, who is not mentioned at all in this Parsha. Right? This is so, mm -hmm. so and and the and so he should be a logical person to be wearing this, should be Moshe, should be the material That's manifestation true. of Moshe. In fact, it's it's our own, and we learn that Moshe is more revealed in this Parsha than any other Parsha. Right? We learned that that really if you want to know who Moshe is, this is the Parsha to study. And that actually parallels what we see in Purim, that Hashem's name isn't mentioned while the Jewish people are acting out his mishpat, right? So when the Jewish people are acting out Hashem's mishpat, they're, manifest they're manifesting 
the presence of Hashem on the earth themselves. They're doing the heavy lifting, and Hashem is revealed. In the same way, I think with, what's being taught here is that while we're looking at the core, like concrete functionality of of the of of the levushim and the and the processes through which like we were seeking these answers, we're really getting the most of the abstract understanding through this. But it's really like that's that's where Moshe's Moshe's Hochma is really like that the understanding of the law is most greatly revealed. Hmm. Wow. I need to think about it, but it sounds really good. <laughs> <laughs> Very, very good, really. Tell him I agree. Rabbi Phil agrees. Rabbi Zweig, how do we understand the role of the post game today? Both those who have may have official titles, the 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 you know the Sephardic, uh, the chief Sephardic rabbi, or 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 just those in, informal ones uh, that people recognize through different communities, all the way up to you know, a very small uh, number of individuals. Uh, how do we see, how do they fit into this? And do we understand or do they understand certain boundaries of what their um, their authority or their expertise, their role is? So I, I, and nowadays we really don't have official bodies uh, with official roles, right? We don't really have official positions. We might have titles, you know, because, you know, people can make up titles and apply them to people or to themselves, but we don't really have official um, bodies of power. So really all the titles and the roles that you know about is a fancy way of saying influencer, right? And so the bottom line is, is that, you know, people have whatever sphere of influence they have which motivates uh, whatever their sphere of influence is in whatever direction. And what ends up happening is the collective Jewish people being, uh, you know, kind of at a loss, but nonetheless functioning in some way, right? That's what people call all the time a lack of leadership. That's true. But uh, what we do have is that the influencers are hopefully instigating positive change among enough people that the overall collective responses are very good. Like, you know, the, like all the incredible uh, resurging of, of harmony and participation in each other's lives in, you know, Eretz Israel today, I don't look at only as, you know, a bunch of individuals that have decided to do good. I look at all those influences as, you know, as, gotten, as having gotten a lot of people really ready for some good things. You hear what I'm saying? But there's no official guidance and governance system, which is both terrible, um, but also reality. And nonetheless, you know, we, we are coming to some sort of decisions about things collectively. Any other questions or comments? Job All right. So, I'm sorry. I said good job. We'll see you, Mitch. Thank you. We look forward to that. I'm wishing everybody a good job.